Hey, Mountain. How's everybody doing? Yeah? Hey, I'm Kirk. I'm one of the pastors over at the Bel Air campus. It's great to be with everybody today. And if you're new here, or maybe you've been in church for a long time, or maybe you've been in this church for a long time, I just want to say you're welcome here. This is a place for everybody. So you're all welcome here. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about me today. So I grew up in a great church in Illinois, and so I'm a church kid. So my dad was the pastor of the church that I grew up in, and so if the doors were open, we were there. And sometimes when the doors were closed, we were still there. So I'm a church kid. Yeah, there's a lot of good stories that come from being a pastor's kid or being a church kid. I want to tell you one of those really good stories today. Most of the stories in my experience from my life are pretty embarrassing, so hang with me, okay? Well, I have one sibling, my sister. She's great. I love my sister. She's the best sister I've ever had. Yeah, you're getting it? Yes? Okay, good. Now, when we were kids, there was never even a single instance where we got into a fight or an argument. Like, I mean, we shared everything perfectly. We were perfect children. Yeah? Are you believing this? No, you shouldn't, because it's totally not true at all. I mean, we fought like siblings do sometimes. We had some pretty epic arguments. You know, um, when you're a church kid, and particularly when you're a pastor's kid, your parents can get creative with how to modify behavior. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, there was this one time my parents found this song called the Brother-Sister Song. Yeah, and uh, since my dad was the pastor of the church, he had us sing this song to each other in a church service. Yeah, let, me, let me read you the lyrics to this song. It goes like this. Here's to my sister, remember every day, no matter what I've said, here's what I'd like to say. I will always love you, be with you to the end, and when no one else is around, I will be your friend. Someday when we're far away and the miles keep us apart, I'm gonna whisper, I love my sister, and you'll know it in your heart. Uh, what are you, are, are you kidding me? Huh? Can you imagine getting up in front of the whole church, all your friends, basically everybody you know as a 10-year-old boy and singing that song about your sister? I mean, that is a unique kind of torture, okay? Hey, I do love my sister. I just want to make make that clear, okay? Hey, we're in a series right now. We're talking about the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark. And I love the book of Mark because he's just so relatable. I feel like, man, he's just easy to understand. And one of the reasons I love Mark too is like, he was a church kid. Yeah, I feel like I get this guy. So when Jesus was teaching, he had this close group of followers called the disciples. And then there was this other ring of people that kind of followed Jesus. And Mark was one of those people that followed Jesus. He was probably a teenager, an adolescent when Jesus uh, was, was teaching. And so Mark 
was a church kid. Mark's mother's name was Mary. Now, it's not that Mary, just to make this clear. It was a different Mary, not Jesus' mom, but Mark's mother's name was Mary. And in the book of Acts, it says that one of the early churches in Jerusalem met in Mary's house, the mother of Mark. So Mark was a church kid. I like to think of him kind of like as the first pastor's kid or one of the first pastor's kids. So I always feel like I get this guy. And he gets me. Like, he understands me, too. So, uh... When I was a kid, I always felt like I had a lot of people watching out for me. That was a really great thing. But, you know, every once in a while, it kind of felt like I just had a lot of people watching me. That's a big difference when you're a kid. And for Mark, I imagine the people that were watching out for him in those early church meetings, it was like Peter and John. And then when he was a kid, it was probably even Jesus, too. I mean, can you imagine the pressure he had? Yeah. So... The book of Mark is Mark telling the good story of Jesus. And he was probably writing this with the help of Peter. But sometimes I wonder, did Jesus have any good stories about Mark? You know, since Mark was kind of a teenager, he was the kid following them around. I wonder if he ever did anything embarrassing. So if Jesus ever had any good stories about Mark. Like, I wonder if Mark ever, like, got lost when he took a camel out for a spin for the first time. or You know? And all the guys, the disciples, they all gave him a hard time about it. Or I wonder if, like, his mother Mary made him get up in front of the church and sing a song about his sister or sometime or something like that. I wonder if Jesus ever had to say to Mark, be like, hey, dude, pick up your coat. Don't just leave your coat lying around. Or if he was like, Mark, shut the door. Were you born in a barn? Because I was. So in the last few weeks, we've talked about how the book of Mark is full of excitement and energy, and Mark is clearly a great storyteller, and like all great storytellers, Mark knows how to keep the story moving. And so the first half of his book is Mark telling the story of Jesus' ministry, and he's trying to convey this one thing, that Jesus has power because he's the Son of God of God. Mark shows the power that Jesus has by telling a whole bunch of miracle stories that Jesus performed. In Mark's gospel, he records 15 miracles. Now, I'm going to share with you the Kirk Boland condensed definition of a miracle, and I think today this will work to help us think about these stories, to see how Mark is using these stories to point us to the fact that this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. And so this simple definition is this. Miracles are events initiated by God or through the power of God that cannot be explained by the laws of nature. Now I'm going to run down a list of some of the miracle stories in the book of Mark. Mark moves through his narrative quickly, and so I'm going to do the same thing today. I'm going to go through this list quickly and with some urgency, okay? So on the very first page of his gospel, he tells this story about a time when Jesus encounters a man with an impure spirit. He's demon-possessed. The man says to Jesus, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus responds saying, be quiet, come out of him. 
And the demon leaves the man, and everyone was amazed. And just a few verses later, a man with leprosy, a contagious skin disease, comes to Jesus and says, If you're willing, will you make me clean? And Jesus says, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the man was healed, and the sores and scars that covered his body were gone. And right after that story, Mark tells us about a time when a paralyzed man wanted to see Jesus to be healed But he couldn't get to Jesus because the crowd was so thick. So his four friends went up onto the roof of the house where Jesus was teaching. And they cut a hole in the roof and they lowered their friend down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your mat and walk. And the man walks out of that house. Man, I hope we all have friends that care about us that much. That they would do anything to get us to Jesus. A man with a shriveled hand comes to Jesus on the Sabbath, and Jesus tells the man, stand in front of everyone, get where everyone can see, and then he says, stretch out your hand, and the man does, and it's healed. A woman who's been bleeding for years, a case the medical community had given up on, is healed when she touches Jesus' garment, and Jesus says to her, your faith has healed you. And then there's the story of the Syrophoenician woman. It's just fun to say Syrophoenician, right? Yeah, but this woman's daughter was demon-possessed, and Jesus casts out the demon. Some people brought a man who was deaf and mute to Jesus, and Jesus heals the man when he takes his fingers and he sticks them in the man's ear, and then he spits, and he touches the man's tongue. Jesus is so powerful. Mark's trying to show us in this moment that even Jesus' wet willies have healing power. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus was teaching a big crowd of people, and he feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. That's the guy you want to invite to your next party. One last miracle that Mark shares with us is when Jesus removes an evil spirit from a young boy, and he asks the boy's father, do you have faith? And the father says, yes, I have faith. Help me where my faith falls short. Wow, do you get the picture here that Mark's trying to paint for us? This guy, Jesus, he's got power. He's got power over disease. He's got power over nature. He's got power over demons. He's got power over the evil forces of the world. He's got power over hunger. He has the power. And it makes me wonder what Jesus, with all that power, could do in my life. A Jesus that could heal disease and feed the hungry. Do you think he could take care of your problems? If that Jesus asks you if you have faith, could you say, yes, I have faith, but help me have more faith? Now, a skeptic could hear these stories and they could say, how how do we know that that actually happened? I mean, couldn't somebody have just made up all these stories? I mean, couldn't it have been embellished at some point in time? Did this really happen? You know, Ben shared with us a few weeks ago that the book of Mark was written during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. So people could have come forward to discredit the text. They could have said, no, it didn't really happen like that. This is what actually happened. But we see just the opposite of that. We see people time and again saying, Yes, that's exactly how it happened. I saw it with my own two eyes. Well, today we're going to zero in on two more of the miracle stories that happen in the book of Mark. They happen on the same night, just minutes apart from each other. So we can kind of think of this as one story that has two miracles in it. 
And as we hear this story, let's keep this question in our minds. What could happen in my life if Jesus was there with that kind of power? Let's go to the text. This is Mark chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. And a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves would obey him? Well, in many of the miracle stories, it says that people were amazed or they were astonished when they saw what Jesus could do. And I think most of us would be amazed if we had a loved one who was sick or dying and Jesus healed them. We'd be jumping for joy. I know I would, wouldn't you? Yeah. But then we see in several of the stories like this one, it says that people were afraid when they saw the display of power. The disciples were afraid. These are the guys who knew Jesus the best. The same guys we heard about last week who dropped their fishing nets and they left everything to follow Jesus and now they're afraid. Imagine being confronted, confronted with so much power that even the wind and the waves would cease from just a word It's almost like when a bright light flashes in your eyes and it takes a moment to regain your vision. You're disoriented. You're afraid to move. The disciples were scared. They knew they couldn't do anything about the storm. They knew that they were in trouble, but they also knew this, that they could go to Jesus And I think that's something for all of us to hear today. When we're in the storm, when it looks like our back's against the wall, we can go to Jesus. But when Jesus did something, the light flashed in their eyes and they were afraid. They asked each other, who is this man? I mean, that storm was scary, and we thought we were going to die, but who is this guy? You know, Jesus asked a question in the book of Mark that we all need to answer. It sounds a lot like this question, who do you say that I am? Storms are going to come in life. Life's not always going to be easy. Jesus at one point told his followers this, that in this life you will have trouble. Friends are going to get sick. The stock market's going to go down. There'll be earthquakes and hurricanes. Your kids will make bad and hurtful decisions. Have you experienced a storm in your life? You might be thinking right now, dude, If you only knew the storm that's raging all around me, 
And if that's you today, look around the room that you're in, or maybe you're watching this online. Know that this is a community of people who have been in some storms, and some of us are there in the storm right now. We love to say that there's no perfect people allowed around here. This church is full of mess-ups and mistakes and people who are in pain. But it's also full of people who are beginning to recognize the grace and the presence of God in their lives. Jesus is in the boat with you, and he is not afraid. He's got the power to reach into your life and to speak peace into the storm that's raging all around you. Don't allow the presence of the storm cause you to doubt the presence of God. So they had sailed through the night, through the storm, and the Sea of Galilee, it's about eight miles wide at its widest point. So it would still be dark when they landed. And no doubt Jesus and his followers were tired. They were looking for a place to rest, looking for a place to retreat. I'm sure all they wanted was to find a place to sleep. And Mark 5 tells us what happens when they step ashore. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons at his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. It sounds like this guy's like the Incredible Hulk or something. I mean, nobody could restrain him. He had some physical power. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. The place they landed was full of caves, a place where people would take their dead to be buried. And in the Gospel of Luke, it says that this man was naked when he came running and screaming at Jesus. And the disciples had been afraid of Jesus just a few moments before out on the boat. And I'm sure that as this man came running, they were gripped with fear once again. The man had an impure spirit. He was demon-possessed. He lived out away from the community in a cemetery, a dead man walking. And I don't want to stand up here today and just tell ghost stories. And I don't know what you think or what you believe about demonic activity in this world. And in our culture today, it's really hard for us to talk about demons or evil spirits. But I can tell you this, that I believe there is both light and darkness. And that there are forces at work in this world that seek to do harm, that seek to keep us from walking in the light, the light that is Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a novel, and it's the correspondence between two demons about how best to discourage and to take down people, particularly to keep them 
from Jesus. And in the intro to that book, Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the existence of devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally delighted by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. There is a spiritual battle that's going on all around us all the time. And if we have a fault in our culture, it's this, that we can turn a blind eye to that battle. We err as the materialist and we try to explain away these forces to rationalize this, to chalk it up to coincidence or say it's illegitimate. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. A lot of folks around here have been in a study called Rooted. It's been a powerful and transformative experience that helps us examine what we believe, and then draw us closer to Jesus. And one of the weeks in Rooted talks about strongholds. Strongholds are the place, the places where sin has taken up residence in your life. It says this, a stronghold is more than sin. Satan has taken a natural desire in us and supercharged it to create something beyond our control. He's twisted a weakness we have into a binding knot where Satan is holding the ropes. A stronghold is a spiritual battle Satan is waging for our souls. Let's go back to the story. For Jesus said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This man is on his knees in front of Jesus screaming and Jesus simply asks, In a calm and discerning manner, what is your name? You'll notice the demons, they know who Jesus is. They need no introduction. They know that he is the son of the most high God. They know that he has the power. He has the power to send them away. If you read this in the uh, message translation of the Bible, the man answers, My name is Mob, for there is a rioting mob within me. And it's no wonder now that this man spends his days and his nights among the tombs, wailing and screaming, cutting himself, for there was a rioting mob within him that wanted nothing more than to destroy him and everything around him. That's what demons do. They seek to destroy. That word legion... It's a term that referred to a Roman military unit, about 6,000 people strong. A man possessed by 6,000 demons. Have you heard the phrase Pax Romana? It's a Latin term. It means the peace of Rome. 
And it refers to the 200 years surrounding Jesus' life where there was peace in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire spread all around the Mediterranean. So this story would happen under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. For about 200 years, there were no major wars in Rome. They had conquered most of the known world. There was relative peace, but that does not mean that Rome ruled peacefully. Rome had a military force throughout the empire, and they maintained peace at all costs. And we see from several ancient sources that in the area of the the Decapolis, near where this story takes place, one of those Roman legions, the 10th legion, made camp, and they were known for their cruelty, for their brutality and oppression. Rome was seen by most native people as the enemy. They were evil personified. N.T. Wright is this New Testament scholar and he's brilliant and he has this way of making really difficult concepts easy for us to understand. That's what really good teachers do. And he says this about this demon-possessed man. It seems as though this poor fellow had become from one point of view totally obsessed by the powers that had taken over his country, and from another point of view, totally possessed by a troop of phantom invaders that had taken over his humanity. They had given him superhuman strength, but they had left him a human wreck, naked, isolated, and self-destructive. The man probably had been through some storms. And we don't know what his backstory is, but I'm pretty sure that it's one that's filled with pain and hardship, maybe some of the same things that you're going through today. Maybe he'd been abused. Maybe he'd been mistreated. Maybe he had been oppressed. Maybe he turned to a substance. You know, when we talk about demons today in our culture, one of the first things we think about is addiction. And I believe that one of the primary ways that Satan, the deceiver, works in our culture is by nudging us towards substances, events, images, people, and behaviors that seek to control us. And when someone's struggling with addiction, we'll use phrases like, they're battling their demons. Or we might talk about the demon in the bottle. You know, addictions open us up to the spiritual world where those very real evil forces can creep in and take hold in your life. And when you're addicted, it's hard to display the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the marker of a life that's pursuing holiness. The fruit of the Spirit is this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. There we go. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when addiction starts to grab hold of a life, the first thing that goes is self-control. And then it's a slippery slope because then there goes patience. And then kindness is gone and goodness vanishes. Peace becomes elusive. Faithfulness is fleeting. And when joy is gone, the lights go out. And then at last, it becomes hard, seemingly impossible to love. You may be thinking right now, I'm a good person. 
I mean, there's nothing in my life that has me foaming at the mouth. I mean, I'm not running around naked in a cemetery like that guy in the story. I'm not selling everything I have for a quick fix. I could quit anytime I want to. But are you sure there's not things in your life that are controlling you, that have a grip on you? Maybe the things that are controlling you are just easy to hide. Or maybe you've surrounded yourself by people that accept those behaviors and they, they don't help you overcome addictions. I do want to say a word right now to some of us who are controlled by things that were done to us. Sometimes by people who are supposed to love us. By people who are supposed to be looking out for our own interests, our best interest. But instead, they were seeking their own power or pleasure. And maybe that's left you with an impure spirit, with brokenness. Hear me, there is healing and peace in Jesus. And you won't find it anywhere else. In Romans 7, Paul says this, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Doesn't that verse sound like addiction? Yeah, you know what else it sounds like? That sounds like my whole life. Are you feeling me? Does that sound like your life too? Yeah. There's a community of people that meets here at Mountain on Friday nights. It's called Celebrate Recovery. And when they get together, they talk about the hurts, habits, and hangups of life. And they recognize that they need the healing power of Jesus to cast out the darkness. My friend Jesse's part of that community, and uh, I love Jesse. I get to play music with him all the time at church. It's a great joy for me, and so I'm excited for you to hear his story today. Let's take a listen to Jesse's story. I have always, from day one, wanted to be an artist, a musician. I've always, that's, that's how my brain is. I mean, from day one when I was born, I've always thought that's what I was going to be. One of my bucket list items was to go to Los Angeles and I went out there and my lifestyle was very much music, but it was also a very quick lifestyle and, and you know, in typical musician fashion, I got involved in a lot of drugs. Because of my great relationship with my mom, there was never a filter. We were best friends. She would always listen, she was always there and I would always tell her what was going on in my life. She finally found that person that really, you know, gave her purpose as far as her relationship. And uh, he was an alcoholic. He found out he had liver cancer. Two weeks before his, he was supposed to get his liver, he passed away. You know, she was a very loving person, but she couldn't deal with these, these things going on. My prized possession, it got sold, so I could get back to Florida. I'm so glad I did. <laughs> because I got to have two, mo two months with my mother that I'd never be able to get back. And, and then, you know, of course, I got the phone call. Uh, from my uncle one day and he says your mom shot herself from that day on my life was never the same as far as 
I don't, I don't know that I even had a day where I wasn't completely drunk from there on out. I never was a drinker before my mom passed. I was way more of other things. I wanted to stay awake. I wanted to be productive. I wanted to experience life. And then uh, when my mom left me, all I wanted to do was be numb. I needed to be away from everything for 14 years. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to be a part of anything. And then from there, it was time to get out of Florida. Came to Maryland. The same problems came back, and I just kept drinking, kept drinking. I went to the hospital eight times. It got to that spot where it's just time to live or die. And that's when I asked God what to do. Please take me if I'm supposed to die, because I don't want to die a slow death. Just go ahead and take me now. Or if I'm supposed to be here, then, then let me be here and it'll be over. I woke up the next morning and realized that that's what it was about. And I had to surrender, I had to relinquish control. When you relinquish control and you let God take over and you do what you know God wants you to do, things drastically change. May 30th is my sobriety date and I think I went to celebrate recovery the next night. I wanted to be a part of it immediately. And so from there on out, um, I got involved with the worship team and that was the best decision I've ever made because that's it's become such a big part of my life. Now it's, it's just such a different feeling almost two years later and I think back to the time when it was not even 24 hours yet and I was in that Celebrate Recovery room and how difficult it was to pick up that first Celebrate Recovery 24-hour chip. And I would have never guessed that this is where I would be now. And I know it's not because of me and I love that. I, again, you relinquish control. The one thing I did learn is that you don't have a drug and an alcohol problem. You don't have a sex addiction problem. You don't have all these problems. You have a spiritual problem. When you're at your spiritual center and when you feel more one with God, you find that these other things are not necessary. They're diversions. The power of Jesus can cast out the demon of addiction. Jesse realized something really important there. That you don't have a drug and alcohol problem. You have a spiritual problem and it manifests itself in destructive addictions. Romans 7 says, Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesse thought his addiction would lead to his death, but ultimately he was delivered through Jesus Christ. In Jesus there is freedom from addiction. There is light that shines into the dark places of our lives. The hurts, habits, and hang-ups of life are replaced with hope, healing, and wholeness. Now, I know that last one doesn't start with an H, but it sure sounds like it, doesn't it? And if your life feels broken in some way, or maybe you care about someone who struggles with addiction, that Celebrate Recovery community, they want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in your life. Hey, one last time, let's jump into this good story. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well, and then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. 
As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus didn't let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Dressed and in his right mind, the return of self-control, a miracle. Jesus made a way for that demon-possessed man to be made whole again. Did you catch the part about the people being afraid? Jesus, they wanted Jesus to leave, and this man had been a problem in their community for years. But now that the demons were gone, they didn't know what to do with this guy. If that Jesus guy is more powerful than, what, than whatever was controlling this man, then I don't know what to, to do with that. I'm afraid of that kind of power. And maybe they care more about their pigs than they did the man that they had outcast. But they saw the power of Jesus and the light flashed in their eyes and they were afraid. The kingdom of God is coming. It's starting in the lives of people who've been controlled by substances but are now free from those chains and people who have been filled with hatred and racism but are now filled with grace and love. People who have been abused and hurt but are now filled with forgiveness and hope. People who were possessed but are now made whole, dressed and in their right minds and then sent out on mission to tell the world about Jesus and what he has done for them, just like Jesse showed us today. Tell your story. People hear me. If you are suffering, a sinner, sick, addicted, there is healing and hope in Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. Romans 8.38 says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your demons cannot keep you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. That is a good story. Hey, let's pray together. God, we come today and we want to say, uh, help us have more faith. And God, we ask for you to reach into the broken places of our lives where there is pain and we pray for your healing. God, the places where we are in storms, we pray for your peace. God, the places where we are controlled, help us to surrender to you. And God, surround us with community that will point us and lead us in the way. And we pray right now in the name of Jesus the Son of the Most High God, who has the power. Amen.